Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Origin episode with Bobby Baseball, Bobby Baseball 321 on Instagram. He was actually the first alternate for the hobby content creator dinner I did more than a year ago. And he just remembered that he almost made the cut, got in too late. So I promised him that we'd do some episodes. He has a fabulous collection and uh, likes to show it up. He's a private guy. It's not his real name. And I totally respect that. I know his name. I'm not going to out him. People ought to have the choice to hobby the way they want to. And if that requires or involves a little bit of anonymity, I think that's fine. People that need to know probably do know. But anyway, thanks, Bobby, for sharing your collection and sharing your story. Thanks also sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So I had a good time. Kindred Spirit, somebody that really, really likes a lot of things, but certainly has a bigger heart for vintage and primarily baseball. So thanks, Bobby, and I hope the listeners enjoyed as much as I did. Welcome, Bobby Baseball. <laughs> You've got a great collection and I'd like to hear more about it, how you got started, where you are now, where you're going. Well, thanks so much. started when I was a teenager. I remember at 13 years old, buying packs in my neighborhood and seeing kids resell some of their cards to dealers at roughly half the price of what they wind up buying them for. And I thought, wow, that seems like a pretty good margin. What if I get into this game myself and maybe work on a slightly lower margin, but drive a lot more volume? So when I turned 14, I grabbed a buddy of mine who was 12 at the time, and we asked our parents to get us a tax number, and we started selling at shows. And did that for a host of years through the mid-80s, and saved up a lot of money, actually enough money to help pay my way through college. And I'd stayed with the hobby from those years till the present day, putting together all the top sets. I was born in 73. So as I started earning some money in my career in technology, I started building out all the late 70 sets, then the early 70 sets, got from 73 till present day. And then more recently, probably about seven or eight years ago, came into a bit more money. Having felt my career, I decided to work my way back to 52. And I was proud enough to finally make my way to 52, completing the set at the National, I think in 2015, getting the last card for the 1952 set. But the one thing I'd always had my eye on, and I remember sitting at a card show, I think it was 1987 with my partner, when we first heard about the Honus Wagner being bought by Wayne Gretzky and thinking to myself, gosh, one day, maybe I'll earn enough money or save enough money to go get that card. Right when COVID hit, I had seen one in an auction that I really loved, a really well-loved Honus Wagner, a one that's got all the creases and all the love that you could possibly imagine. I was proud to win that and make that part of my collection. Since I've been continuing to build out, I finally finished the T206 set in total. In tandem, I worked on rookie cards of all the Hall of Famers written in by the Baseball Writers Associations. I have all those, all the rookie cards of the 500 Home Run Club, the 3000 Hit Club, all the World Series MVPs, all the rookies of all the MVPs in general. I'm currently working on the rookie cards of all of the retired numbers of every baseball player. Are these player. RSA set registry groupings? These are your own groupings, right? They're my own groupings. I make it fun for myself in some cases. For let's say the 500 home run club, the decade in which they hit their 500th home run, I would go get the PSA equivalent. So if it's in the 80s, get a PSA 8. But some collections, I do them completely raw. With some, I intermix some of the PSA because there's just some expensive cards in there. So it's just something that stayed with me now for, as I mentioned, over 30 years and probably five, six hours a week. I'm in my office uh, sorting through cards, listening to YouTube and listening to some of the po podcasts like your own. 
to help me get centered and get me going for the next day at work. Bobby, the dilemma that only a handful of people have in the industry, and you do, I actually do not have this dilemma, is what do you do after you get a Wagner? (laughs) (laughs) And the way you've described it, you sound like you're looking for an upgrade from your one because as you said, this is a real card that was loved and handled by maybe several people, but a super tough card, an iconic card. In terms of uh, grails, what I've been doing as well over the past 10 years or so is collecting full player runs, but also full player runs autographed, which is really tough to do. I finished Mantle's run all autographed, and that took me about seven years. Same thing. So Supposedly, there's only 10 52 tops Mantle's autographed. I think it is something. That's what they know. I'm sure there's more, but maybe that's based on pop reports. That's right. Also, the Bowman's, only a handful of the Bowman's. Eight years ago, I got the 51 Bowman autograph that was on uh, Pawn Stars that they passed on. (laughs) Finding the person they added made that part of the collection. There's so many vectors to go in in vintage. I know, but that's one that I don't think you're doing it for wealth creation or wealth preservation. But along the way, maybe ahead of the game in terms of not just autograph rookie cards, but autograph cards of great players who have long passed away. I think so. I think they're undervalued based on any kind of a pop report or recognition of an autograph version is probably equal to an upper grade version, but it's not priced that way. That's right. That's my sense for it for two reasons. One, autograph cards became more popular in the 90s when they're actually produced by the manufacturers. And secondarily, I think one of the reasons we didn't want to have players deface our card by autographing it back in the day was before slabbing, because you could swipe it or you could, you could run your hand over it, whatever. But once it's slabbed, it becomes captured in time in many ways. And as you say, the scarcity of these things is unbelievable. And some of the eye appeal you can get. And you could do fun things. Rainbows are also very popular things. It took me a while to get this too, but I got the 33 Gaudi Babe Ruth, the four cards, all autographed, a little rainbow of the of Babe Ruth, which I thought was fun. I even considered maybe when collectible was getting going, maybe at some point fractionalizing that so people could have a portion of that as a collection to make it fun. Bob, how much interest are you going to receive? 51%. Controlling interest. Yeah, controlling interest, exactly. I didn't do it because I like just having these things and I have them in the safe deposit box collectible. I think there's an opportunity there and they're filling that niche and I don't think they're messing up. It's just, it's evolving. But my guess is you're not their customer and I'm not their customer because I want to have my cards. I'm not even a good customer for a vault. How are you on that? Do you want to own a piece of something or the whole thing? And do you want somebody else to hold it or do you want to hold it? No, I want to hold it. I want to have it. Every time I add cards to my collection, I go to the safe deposit box and there's a room there. You can sit and you look at the Wagner again. You look at some of these roots. It's amazing. The only reason with that one I considered it is because it's not just a card. It's almost a collection. And so you almost want to share it with other people in that way, the rainbow of autograph roots. But generally speaking, I want to have them. I don't send anything into a vault. It's my collection. It's a physical collection. Yeah. I've. That's what I feel. I want to be able to show people. I don't show people as much because I've got too many cards. I don't know if you feel like that. If you've got complete sets from the 50s and the 60s, let's say that a two-decade run, do you have 20 times the average number of cards or 600, or do you have many items? They may be in binders. They may be in boxes. But if you're inventorying, they're complete sets. Item one, it's a 52 top set. But if you wanted somebody to look at it, they'd want to pour over it. That's too nice of a set to put in plastic sheets and a binder for sure. That's right. If it's slabbed, it's a significant weight and storage. I keep all the sets in 
beautifully labeled, but regular boxes. And I have maybe the top 10 to 20 cards that are either in mag cases or PSA holders in Pelican style cases. So if you want to show someone in your collection, you could pull out one of these Pelican cases and you've got most of the 50s in there, the primary stars, with the exception of the very highest end ones that you keep in your uh, kind of in your vault. That's almost exactly what I do. I really <laughs> talk to somebody. My most valuable stuff is at the bank. The not as valuable stuff is here and it's slabbed. The way less valuable is just in boxes. They're maybe not as beautifully labeled as yours. <laughs> but who comes over and wants to see the comments? I don't think they do. Very rarely. Sometimes they'll think sure. of a layer and then you go find it for them. Exactly right. I've done the same since with Bowman's as well. I put together all the Bowman sets. So the early sets, obviously, and then all the latest sets as well. And then you have the one of 500 poo holes is obviously in a slab, but the rest of the sets in boxes. Are you unusual in the sense that you're working backwards and forwards? Because I think a lot of guys, when you have such an outstanding vintage collection, they just get exhausted by the newer cards. Are you just mainly doing Topps Flagship? Or are you doing all these sub-brands and Panini and all the other kinds? I'm not doing all the sub-brands in general, but what I do is I highlight a few players I think are really good, let's say pre-Hall of Fame or early prospect players. I was just at a show this Saturday, going through dollar boxes, looking for, let's say, the top 10 rookie cards of a given prospect. And I'll collect the top 10 of that and I'll store that separately, alphabetically. And so as I see these players playing, I'd go back in and see, look at the different types of cards out of that particular player. Sometimes serial numbered, if it's a high-end card. I hope you don't go to the same shows I go to because <laughs> you're looking for what I'm looking for. That's not fair. And the dollar box is amazing what you'll find. Absolutely. It's not going to be great cards, but they're going to be overlooked, really good cards in some cases. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, Especially the 80s. If you're a student of the game or you're tuned in. Yeah. I was going to say, in the 80s, sometimes you go through $5 boxes, $10 boxes, and you're finding the cards that you remember that were just so special to you the Manningly rookies, the Boggs rookies, the Sandbergs, the whatever may be good and all that. And I always pick that up. I can't help it because to me, that's just worth what it was worth then and more. So I'll add those to my alphabetized boxes of cards I have at home. So you have your complete sets. This is uncanny because I'm doing the same thing. I have my complete sets and then I have a separate area that's alphabetized by the player. Like I said, if I'm in a dollar box, which is fun for me, it's not going to move any needles, but it's going to be fun. And I'm going to pull out stuff I think is interesting. And if it's a no-name player, I'll learn about it, but then I may discard. I don't. It's like catch and release. But if it's Sandberg or all the guys you mentioned, I think that's an interesting. I may already have it, but who cares if I have another one? That's exactly the way I've been doing it. It keeps it fun because you're interacting at these shows with kids who are doing what I was doing when I was 14 to 15 and flipping cards. And at the same time, you're on some of these high-end auction sites from Golden Heritage and all that and getting cards. They all mean just as much to you, right? Obviously, one is worth a lot more than another, but they all mean just as much. They're just fun to be around and collect and collect. At 13, I was slowing down. And as 13 is when you got started. Did you have any perception of cards and sports before you were 13? Or did it just pop up because your buddy or was it serendipitous? I was aware of cards from the age of seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. It was starting to wane a little bit. I wasn't doing it when I was 10, but I like baseball. I played baseball after school. Kids at a park two houses away from me. So that kind of lured me in. Yeah. It sounds like right from the beginning, it's not that I wanted to do it as a business. It's just I thought businessly about it in terms of what values were and mission and things like that. So it sounds like you're like that too. And it's probably served you well in your business because you've done well. 
Oh, hugely well. And I've been rounding myself off with various degrees over the years and growing, become an executive and running a software company and all that. But I will tell you, I rely more on some of the skills learned in terms of how to position, how to market, how to negotiate, how to trade, how to deal with people with integrity and all that through the experiences I had as early as 14, 15 years old. No doubt. I'm being facetious now, but probably should get a percentage of your success. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, actually, granted. here's the problem with that, Bobby. Is that if I get a percentage of your success, then you get a percentage of my success because <laughs> it's intertwined. I love putting out the magazines and helping kids and their dads or everybody enjoy a hobby that I enjoy. Not only were people learning about business through our magazines and books, I was too. It just was part of the ethos of the day. And you're coming in right when cards are really expanding, what they call junk wax. But it really, it, it may have been overproduced, but it was heavily marketed. And it was overmarketed to where it couldn't support, it became unsustainable. Absolutely. Maybe the hill we're surmounting now in the hobby potentially as well, no doubt. But I'll tell you, that doesn't keep people like you and I and other true collectors from continuing to grow and develop their collections. As I was mentioning earlier, now that with the T206 set done, uh, I've started on the T205, which are the most beautiful cards. Just the other day, holding one of these in my hand with the gold border. Oh my goodness, these are just amazing. To think that they're over 100 years old, it's just incredible to start putting that set together now. Arguably, that's a higher production quality set. The chipping on the gold borders is such that they just get crushed in grading, I think. Yeah. They're beautiful cards. And What I do is I buy the reprint set first. I did the same with T206. I put it in binders, and then as I collect the ones that are real, I sort of compare, and it's just... So much fun. So it becomes like your physical checklist. The man